We recorded this episode several weeks before AEW aired their first nationally televised show, and the WWE decided to go head-to-head against them, which relaunched the pro wrestling wars. Then you saw Cain Velasquez from the UFC retire and go work for the WWE. You also saw heavyweight boxer Tyson Fury doing stuff with the WWE. There were even retired pro wrestlers who went into MMA come back to pro wrestling. It has that 90s feel where it's cool again to be a wrestling fan. Now, most of the major MMA outlets and podcasts cover pro wrestling, as well as it being a regular part of ESPN. So this episode is even more important to catch up all the lapsed fans. Enjoy my talk with Captain Jack. This is Sam. And this is Jack. And this is Southpaw. Hey, and one more thing. If you love the show and want to support us, go to patreon.com slash southpawpod. In the not-too-distant future, 2016 AD, there was a weirdo guy named Jack, not too different from you or me. He sat around his armbar store, just acting nerdy and being poor. He did it all with a cheerful face, so they gave him a show and they shipped him to LA. So today on Southpaw, we have Jack Sullivan, aka Captain Jack Heartless, of Captain Jack's Armbar Emporium, which is a pro wrestling podcast on the Steel Cage Network. So hi, Jack. Hey, how's it going? Tell us a little bit about your podcast. Captain Jack's Armbar Emporium uh, started in the summer of 2016. You know, I would say on average, we do, we meaning I, I guess, the royal (laughs) we, as in me and all of Scotland, (laughs) do a podcast usually on average about every two weeks because the reality is I'm constantly running. Uh, But it was something in the vein of podcasts that I wanted to hear. There's so much negativity in podcasting. There's so much negativity specifically in wrestling podcasting. If you've been on wrestling Twitter, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Uh, Much as the same as MMA Twitter and boxing Twitter, where pretty much the same across all the fight sports. The sky is always falling. This guy always sucks. Why is this guy getting a title shot? Why is this happening? Why is that happening? It's, It's very similar. And it was started kind of as a refutation of that. I wanted something positive, not positive as I'm going to blow smoke and sunshine up your ass, but I wanted to talk about the stuff that I'm really into. You know, if one week I wanted to talk about Roddy Piper, and then the next week I want to talk about all Japan women, and then the next week I want to talk about what's going on with, you know, Okada and Naito and all the guys in New Japan Pro Wrestling, that's what I'm going to do. And I'm going to interview people that you know, get me excited and we're kind of can share that same wavelength and that love of pro wrestling. And so that's kind of how it started. And then pretty early on with what happened in the fall of 2016, when it became very apparent that I just wasn't going to to watch or give a lot of money to WWE anymore, that that put an even finer point on kind of the mission statement of the show and what I wanted to do with it. And it it even more directed where we were going as opposed to where we'd been. 
and kind of a landing pad for the people who didn't necessarily feel like they had as much of a voice in the mainstream. So what happened in 2016 for you to make the switch? It was really the last straw in 2016 for me with the McMahon family, to be entirely honest. Uh, The numbers came out. And when we're talking six, seven, eight, nine, it just multi-million dollars being given to the Donald Trump campaign. And then on top of that, Linda McMahon herself being involved and being a member of the cabinet, it was just, you know, to to quote Bojack Horseman, that's too much, man. Uh, (laughs) It's just, it became a point where it's ethical consumption is really tough in capitalism. That's an absolutely true statement. It's some people will tell you it's impossible, but I'm one of those people that feel whenever possible, you really have to try to be mindful of of where your money's going as much as you possibly can. And that was one of those moments for me where it became an easier decision because easier, but not easy because I felt that I didn't want my money being funneled through this company into Vince McMahon's pockets and then into Donald Trump's pocket. And it was it was like this really awful flow chart yeah. in my head. And I just couldn't justify that anymore. That plus the fact that I hadn't really found myself enjoying the product for a while, at least the vast majority of the product. Uh, and it became very apparent that you know, rather than doing what a lot of fans do and sticking around and just hate watching something and bitching incessantly, I could redirect my energy in a positive manner to stuff that I actually loved and supported and felt better about supporting. And that in turn became an even bigger, like a a rocket thruster behind the show. And how did you come up with the name of the podcast then? It was something where we were just kind of bumming around for ideas. And uh, my stage name for years now has been Captain Jack Heartless. So that had to be in there somewhere. And we were just trying to think of the most ridiculous thing possible. And I'm a huge fan of Chris Jericho. And the idea came from his promo where he walked out on Monday Nitro one night 20 years ago with this just computer paper list of holds because he was fighting with Dean Malenko, who they called the man of a thousand holds. He's like, I have a thousand and four. And every fourth hole was arm bar. (laughs) And so Malenko, you claim to be the man of a thousand holds, but I counted and you know about 60, but I know a thousand and four and I wrote them all down. Here we go. Hold one, arm drag. Hold two, arm bar. Hold three, the moss-covered, three-handled family gradunzel. Why doesn't he just mail us this list and we'll announce it? He just ran it. We just lit on that and then it just became, what's the most silly, like, infomercial thing you could possibly imagine? And Captain Jack's armbar emporium came out of that. And it was something where literally we just made ourselves laugh. And I was like, well, hopefully this will make people laugh too. And then we doubled down on that. And the theme song, which I sing is a total send up, a uh, parody 
of a parody. <laughs> it's the Mystery Science Theater 3000 theme song, but with in- lyrics entirely about me moving to LA and me moving and opening the Armbar Emporium and talking to all these people about pro wrestling. And you said Captain Jack is your stage name. So what stage? Uh, man, you name it. I've been a musician since I was four or five years old. Uh, I've done some acting in there, done uh, live stage shows. I've done a bunch of burlesque, both as a performer and a producer. My most recent deal in that sphere was I produced a wrestling-themed burlesque show, WrestleMania Week here in L.A., called Faces in Heels. And I hosted it as 80s Vince McMahon. The whole, like framing device of it was kind of a Saturday night's main event style thing. So I was 80s Vince and I had the yellow blazer and I had the walk and I talked like this pal the entire (laughs) time. And uh, I had an amazingly funny comic. um, One of my favorites, he's based here in LA uh, by the name of Jeff May. He hosts the um, podcast for Sideshow Collectibles and is brilliant and hilarious. And he was Jesse the Body Ventura. So when we hosted it several days before the last week tonight deal about the lack of unions and pro wrestling had just come out. So he just kept firing off union jokes. I'd be like, Oh no, 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 pal. We, we don't <laughs> need those. And it was, it was ridiculous and so much fun. And it was this perfect melding of the crowd of like a burlesque crowd and a pro wrestling crowd. I mean, One of the most weirdly accomplished feelings I've ever had in my life was a full room of people chanting asshole at me. (laughs) It was the best standing ovation you could ever hope for. So how did you get into pro wrestling then? Man, uh, that's almost like a family legend at this point. The story goes that uh, my dad at the time was in the Marine Corps and he was home with the flu Uh, My mother left to go shopping and left me at all of a year and a half old with my dad who was puking. And apparently every time he would run to the bathroom, I would toddle in behind him and point and laugh. And he was like, Jesus, I got to do something to occupy this kid. He's flipping through the channels. He hits WWF superstars of wrestling. And apparently I just went and that was my ass hitting the floor and staying there for the next 60 minutes. And that was 1986, and I have been absolutely hooked every day since. Much to my mother's dismay, she tried everything. (laughs) She tried to buy me He-Man figures instead. She tried to buy me Star Wars figures instead. She did not want me to be a fan of pro wrestling. It uh, she, She gave in after a while. My dad thought it was great. He grew up in Minnesota and in the late 60s and 70s when the AWA was on a hot and you could walk into any bar and there was superstar Billy Graham or Baron Von Raschke or the Vashans. So he thought it was the greatest thing and he he really encouraged it and it was off to the races from there. So your love of pro wrestling started with the WWF, now known as the WWE, right? But now, fast forward, you don't even watch the WWE anymore. And you talked about political problems with that. But even before that, and as somebody myself who grew up watching the WWF into the conversion into WWE and then stopped watching after a while, I think we all noticed that the quality was going down. This was way before 2016, right? And still to this day, 
people who were left over from the old days who remember when it was better still complain about the quality. So at what point did the quality start to go down and what is wrong with the product? It's interesting because you could ask a hundred different fans and you may get a hundred different answers. The problem comes from the top. It comes from one guy. And the thing you have to understand about a company like the WWE is at the end of the day, the product is being made for an audience of one. And that one person is Vince McMahon. So he has the final say. You could have these incredibly talented people and some of the most talented minds in the history of the business still work in that company or up until recently still work at the company. I Just to rattle off a few, Michael Hayes, uh, Paul Heyman, a.k.a. Paulie Dangerously, the man who created and championed ECW, Extreme Championship Wrestling, um, Arn Anderson up until very recently, Dean Malenko, guys who have this wealth of knowledge, have grown up in the business. But at the end of the day, every th- all roads, all paths go to Vince. So you could have a hundred writers. It's it's like the the monkeys and the typewriters with Shakespeare. That that whole allegory. Yeah. You could have all these writers pumping out all this stuff, but it all goes through one filter. And if that filter is a seventy year old that likes dick and fart jokes, that's going to be the primary of what you're going to get. And I think that has a lot to do with it. I feel like there's other mitigating factors that have happened. The bottom line is that Vince McMahon's creative touch feels like it left a long time ago. But as a businessman, he's razor sharp. That's why you have stories that'll peter out and go nowhere or just take these weird directions and the reverse direction from week to week and all this other shit that I hear from other people is still going on a few years after I stopped watching their product. But the fact is he's still signing multi-million or sometimes billion dollar deals with people like USA and Fox because he's a sharp businessman. And I can't take that away from him. Do you think part of the problem is also the scale? Because it went public because it tried to be so big and it tried to be a movie thing and a music thing and a pro wrestling thing and have TV shows and live shows and all these things, the scale got beyond any one person to handle. Or maybe pro wrestling at its roots, right, is still based off the carnival. Maybe it could only get so big. I don't know that I agree with about it getting only so big. I always thought that the biggest problem was Vince McMahon is ashamed to be in the wrestling business. He is ashamed of the word wrestling. Why? It's... It's fascinating to me. You could almost do like a psych study just on that and be there for hours and hours. But he always talked about, we're in the entertainment business, pal. Goddamn. And a lot of it is he tries to skirt around wrestling. There will be large period, long periods in the company where they wouldn't use the word wrestling. They would use euphemisms like this business or this industry or we're in entertainment or this is what we do kind of at as like a nebulous, like all encapsulating thing that doesn't quite work. And you're just left to be like, oh, they mean wrestling, but they won't say the word wrestling. And I think that's what a lot of it comes down to is. And it's weird because his father was one of the best and most well-respected, the fairest promoters of the modern era. 
Vincent J. McMahon, uh, colloquially known as Vince Senior, was considered just a man of honor. And he obeyed the unwritten rules of the time. He wouldn't cross territory lines. He wouldn't do this. He wouldn't do that. He worked together with people. New York was considered a big money territory even back then, just because of the population centers and things. But, you know, talent trading wasn't out of the ordinary. And then so much so that a lot of people say that if Vince Sr. had known what Vincent Kennedy McMahon the, car, the current Vince was going to do when he bought the company from him in 1982, he wouldn't have sold it to him. Do you think we've also seen symptoms of Vince McMahon's like dislike of wrestling in how he's tried to get into movies or football or in the past bodybuilding? He wanted to create his own bodybuilding promotions, everything other than pro wrestling. I'm painfully familiar with the with the bodybuilding thing one of my dream episodes is to do an episode about the wbf <laughs> captain jack's arm barborium i the only thing that has stopped me is i haven't been able to get a hold of all three of the pay-per-views to review them but very much so he's been trying to get into all these different things even going back to the very beginning he was the guy that promoted evil knievel snake river canyon jump he promoted rock concerts at the Cape Cod Coliseum and washed out there too. Wrestling was his last shot. You know, he wanted in the business, but he originally, back then, he loved the business so much. Like Dr. Jerry Graham was his favorite. He dyed his hair blonde like Dr. Jerry Graham wanted to be a wrestler. And his father said, absolutely not. And had to beg his way in first as an announcer, then as a promoter in Bangor, Maine. And if he'd have, if he'd have failed there, he was over. It would have been fucked. But Somewhere along the way, wanting to get away from the old stigma of pro wrestling. Yeah, then came the bodybuilding with the WBF, and then came the Ico Pro and the Zero Boogie like workout gear that they tried to like compete with Zubaz on. Man, you thought Zubaz were ugly. Zero Boogie is just like, holy shit. Like if Picasso just like violently threw up. That's a pretty good idea of what those patterns were. Explain to people what that is. Okay. So yeah, backtracking real quick. Uh, if you've ever seen like the brightly colored zebra stripe workout pants, uh, those are Zubas. And they're very popular amongst power lifters and pro wrestlers. Uh, it was a big deal because they were like lifting pants that you had lots of room. The company was at one point 50% owned by the Road Warriors by Hawk and Animal back in the 80s. And then they sold their shares. Company kind of like petered out, went away, and they made a huge comeback, which is amazing to me. Yes, I own a couple of pairs. Totally guilty. So WWE tried to come up with their own ripoff brand of that? Uh, amongst many things, but that was all wrapped up in the WBF mania of like 1991 to like late 92 is Vince McMahon, you know, had had the World Bodybuilding Federation. He signed all those dudes. He created his own terrible supplement called IcoPro. He had a WBF Body Stars Saturday morning television show and a magazine uh, called Bodybuilding Lifestyles. And then on top of that, he had this terribly garish workout line called Zero Boogie that he bought into. And if you watch episodes of Primetime Wrestling from 1991, he's wearing it on camera standing next to Bobby Heenan is just yeah. like, good God. 
Well, back in the old WWF magazine, right? They had a whole section just for like apparel, clothes, so you could dress like the wrestlers. And it was those ugly pants, those like <laughs> tank tops, but they were so stretched out low that they were basically drooped down to your belly button. And then you had the fanny pack, right? And, and sometimes the bandana. And that was the WWF at the time wrestling look, which was just hideous. Yeah. I will tell you this. The fanny pack is back. And I can tell you that from traveling a, a lot around independent wrestling and stuff like that over the last couple of years. Absolutely. Anybody who's scoffing at this or laughing at this right now, let me stop you right there. As somebody with a back injury, that is why I started wearing the fanny pack and is the most useful shit of all time as somebody who has to sit in a car for hours on end or get on a plane or go this place or that place. Super fucking useful. Don't knock it till you try it. You could also say his dislike of the tradition of pro wrestling even goes into how he wanted to bring in trained writers, right? Like Hollywood TV or movie writers, or in the case of like somebody like Freddie Prince Jr., an actor to come in and help teach acting to his wrestlers and also help them with scene work. And also you had writers writing scenes. So do you think all of that was like the product? No good. We got to bring in more Hollywood into this. And do you think that's part of the downfall of the quality of the WWE product. You know what? I'll defend Freddie Prince Jr. Because he gets it. To this day, he's a fan. Mm -hmm. He's an old school fan. His approach was probably closer to what a lot of fans would actually want in that he would work with talent and craft specific things. So I give all the credit in the world to that guy, you know, for showing an aptitude for it and stuff like that. But it's it's a grind. It, it chewed him up and spit him out. And he's just like, you know, I have all these other things going on. All, all the credit in the world to him. And from what I hear, great dude to work with. But the bigger issue is it's all about control. And the fact that Vince McMahon wants control over every single aspect and every single thing. And the old way of doing things, the, ex the previously accepted way of doing things was character the actual people playing the characters would have a little more say in what they were doing you know how they would be portrayed how they would say this they would have bullet points they wouldn't have scripts but i think ultimately it comes down to a control freak thing where mcmahon wants to pretty much have his hands in every single aspect of it almost like a for lack of a better description like a puppet master where everybody's dancing but it became easier to do that when you had guys like The Rock and Steve Austin had left. Because a guy like Steve Austin was going to take a script, wipe his ass with it, and like shove it down your throat. And The Rock was so quick, he had no use for your script. He would go out and say whatever the hell he wanted anyway. So it got away from guys using their own talent and their own brain to come up with stuff. And even a guy like John Cena, who at the beginning worked off of bullet points and wrote his own promos or his own raps or whatever it was, that quickly went away too. And then it just became this sort of homogenized, very cookie cutter deal, especially in the mid 2000s, where everybody looked to be about the same height, the same build, like muscle tattooed white guys, nobody under six foot two. And it just very square. <laughs> Do you think John Cena was the first star of that new era of total Vince McMahon creative control 
He went by the script. He was somebody who worked with the writers. He was part of the new mold of wrestling. I absolutely think that's true. Absolutely. Is that part of the reason why also he's so hated? I think, well, John's a nice guy and I can't take that away from him. And you're hard pressed to find somebody that does more for other, for charities and for other people than John Cena does. I'll never take that away from him. Uh, Just stand up, dude. The thing is, he filled a void after Brock Lesnar decided that life wasn't for him and fucked off where Lesnar had been pushed so hard so quickly and made the centerpiece of the company that when he left, I think that's when it really kicked in about McMahon that I can't make anybody the focus like that anymore unless I have complete control. So you had a guy like Cena who had started to get over with the crowd, had at one point it would come within like a hair's breadth of being fired on several occasions. He discovers the white guy rapper gimmick it takes off. They go with that. They eventually turn him babyface and they start building him up to the top of the company and they make him the guy. But it was very easy to make him the guy. And it became clear to him that he, I guess, that he could be malleable to kind of what they wanted. And then on that same other side, you had a guy like Dave Batista who very much was influenced by guys like Triple H and Ric Flair and open to being taught, but very open to the way they wanted to do things. So when right around 2005, when both those guys become the top guys and you have two different brands on different nights, that's when they were really off to the races of the modern era they're on right now. It is very much, you know, we have complete control. We're controlling the signal very much. This, this is the vision, and if you don't like it, well, tough shit because there's nothing else. Do you think the only way he'll give up his control and let it just kind of spread out a little bit and let, you know, because they have two TV shows, no, three TV shows, right? They have the two brands, and then I, I believe they have the, the NXT brand as well. Yeah. Um, Why not allow all of them then to be separately managed and have a different showrunner for each one? You know, that's funny because from what I've read, because it's impossible to be involved in pro wrestling and not at least read about what's going on. You know, it's the WWE is so big that even not watching it, either folks will send me stuff or it will come across the regular newswire at this point. Well, even if you don't pay attention to it, just because you're you seem pretty familiar with the psyche of Vince McMahon and how he his backstory and everything, just from what you now have compiled about him, this character sketch you have a, have of him in your mind, do you feel like with somebody like him, he would have to die before he gave up the control that he has? I've said that forever. <laughs> I've said that forever, and I'm openly questioned if he's able to die. I mean, have you seen the dude? He's like in his 70s and he's ripped. Like I could train every hour on the hour for the next decade and never look like Vince McMahon. It's incredible. And his work ethic is ridiculous. He's a cyborg. He gets pissed off at people for sneezing because he's that's how much about control he's in and gets doubly pissed off at himself when he sneezes. I mean, what does that say? But the big thing that they're trying to push now is they're trying to at least – and I don't know how much of this will actually carry out. They are trying to make it seem like there are showrunners now. What with SmackDown starting their billion-dollar deal with Fox in October, that Eric Bischoff will be the showrunner 
for SmackDown. And Paul Heyman will be the showrunner for Monday Night Raw. And that Triple H will still run the creative for NXT, which is about to premiere, as of this recording, is about to premiere on USA. And they're positioning that to go head-to-head with AEW on Wednesday nights. And he at least gives that impression. But at the at the end of the day, I'm very dubious. Just It's one of those things where those that don't know their history are doomed to repeat it. I'm very dubious of Vince McMahon ceding control to anybody. Yeah, because didn't he already like pull the control back from Heyman and Bischoff? He's like, I tried it for two weeks. That's it. It's tough to say. It's tough to say just because things like dirt sheets, you know, some stuff's accurate, some stuff's not. It, it can be really tough to kind of sift the truth from the fact, yeah. or, or I mean, the, the the truth from the lies at times. And a lot of people said that we won't truly know how much control those people will have until the XFL relaunches in February of 2020. And they may be right. Why would that make a difference? How would that make it more transparent? Because Vince McMahon has a whole bunch of his own skin in that game. Oh, so he'd be so focused on that. Then you can really see if other people are running the ship. That's the theory is because he has so much of his own personal money. He created his own company aside from WWE to restart the XFL. Can you explain for people what is the XFL? (laughs) The XFL is the Extreme Football League, with an X, by the way. Uh, (laughs) So ridiculous. Uh, This was a thing that at the height of what's known as the Attitude Era in 2001, Vince McMahon launched his own football league. And funnily enough, a lot of the technical innovations in the way football is presented now on television by the NFL started with the XFL. Did he sell it to them or there was nothing he could patent to sell them? No. What happened was this was a joint venture with NBC because he's been friends with Dick Ebersol for decades. You know, Dick Ebersol is somebody who doesn't get nearly enough credit for the national expansion of the WWE in that he championed them and got them on NBC for Saturday night's main event starting in 1985, and it just took off. And it was a huge upgrade to the way they visually presented everything and how they became attractive to advertisers and things like that to the point where every four to six weeks, they were replacing Saturday Night Live in late night Saturday night prime slot on NBC. So 2001 rolls around, XFL happens, joint venture Dick Abbott's Dick Ebersol is the head of NBC Sports, along with Vince McMahon. They're doing it. Games on NBC, games on UPN. And the whole thing just absolutely fell apart and went to hell in the handbasket as season one was coming to an end. NBC pulled their money. And Vince McMahon just said, fuck it. And it just was a huge loss. It really depends on who you talk to about it. Some people say it was as much as a $40 million loss. For on McMahon's side, but it's it's tough to say. I mean, you might be able to go back and check SEC filings because they had gone public. WWF at that time had gone public in 1999. So, I mean, I believe it was still tied in there. I think it's going to be a different deal now because technically the company that owns and runs the XFL is Alpha Entertainment. And also the techniques they created then, because they're just filming techniques, it's not something you could sell to the NFL to try to get some of your money back. No, they just they just went, we'll take that. Thank you. <laughs> uh, 
uh, the the camera on the wire on on the X axis over the field that was totally the XFL. Uh, you know the the guys. I would say a lot of the stuff with being in the huddle, in the locker room, things like that. Total XFL. Well, if you look at how WrestleMania is filmed and produced, you see how good the WWE is at creating a TV product. As far as not the storytelling side, but just the filming and the TV side. Of course, everybody who does a live event has stuff to learn from Vince McMahon and the WWE. It was to a point in like the 2000 election where just the filming of candidates walking down the hall to the podium, what they were filming them from the ground up walking down the hall was the same way they would film Steve Austin and The Rock walking backstage on Monday Night Raw. It was insane. Even Dana White secretly has gone to visit Vince McMahon to ask him how they shoot some stuff, some of the filming techniques. There's no secret about it. The eye doesn't lie. Dana has been talking to Vince since the Fertitas bought that company. But they pretend, right? Just like pro wrestling, this heel facade, that they hate each other. That's what they publicly present, but I don't think they hate each other at all. It's a very interesting topic to me because I feel like Dana White is very similar to Vince McMahon. They're like two sides of the same coin to me in that Vince almost always keeps up the facade. Either he can't stand MMA, he'll be like, oh, that's barbaric, or like, that's not the audience we want, or things like that, until Brock Lesnar becomes available, and then holy shit, we have to get him, and we have to give him any amount of money he wants for like four matches a year. And on the other side, Dana White, will be like, ah, yeah, I watched that shit when I was a kid and it was great. But very much any sort of production thing or any way to hype up a match. I mean, it's no surprise to me that when the Fertitas bought and took over the UFC in the mid-2000s and with the admins of the Ultimate Fighter, they were totally taking from the pro wrestling playbook and they've been taking from that ever since. And they took another leap when Brock Lesnar came to the company and it was clear that not only could he not only could he cut an interview, could he cut a promo on somebody? You know, the most famous one coming to mind is when Frank Mir pissed him off so bad he punched a door in half, <laughs> which is still amazing to me. Um, it became very clear that that was going to be a, a new way to sell fights for them, where as time has gone on, the UFC and just MMA in general has moved more and more into that pro wrestling sphere, at least in the promotion of fights. Now, a lot of people think Donald Trump was involved with the XFL. Was he involved with the XFL? It was a precursor. Um, there's a great book about it. I think it's called Football for a Buck uh, about the USFL. And that whole thing. And there's also a fantastic 30 for 30 special on ESPN about the USFL and that whole deal. But Trump was involved in that. And, you know, the legend goes he's had a gripe against the NFL forevermore after that. And so for for again, some if you know your history, some of this stuff is not surprising. It's totally not surprising that, you know, a racist asshole like Donald Trump is going to hold a longstanding grudge against the NFL. And anytime he can take a shot at them, you know, about the the garbage about kneeling makes you un-American and all that stupid bullshit was uh, opening for him on a national scale. 
to tell the lemmings, oh, the NFL, these NFL players are ungrateful and they're un-American and all that other happy horse shit. But that's one of the examples people use to compare Vince McMahon to Donald Trump. Vince McMahon had his bodybuilding stuff he tried to do. I don't know if Donald Trump ever had something like that, but he had his whole pageants thing. They both tried to go against the NFL and create their own thing. They worked together in pro wrestling and pay-per-views and promotions and just politics-wise, personality-wise, and even their whole like promo style and pro wrestling shtick when they speak. You mentioned Dana White, but also somewhere in that trifecta, I think, is Donald Trump. Absolutely. Um, I think Dana White is the other side of the coin from Vince McMahon, but on the same standing next to him on that same side (laughs) of the coin, Vince and Trump are arm in arm. It goes back to as far as WrestleMania's four and five being back to back in the now defunct Trump Plaza in Atlantic City in 88 and 89. And by the way, anybody who thinks that Donald Trump is a shrewd businessman, how the fuck do you lose money? And have to close a casino. (laughs) It boggles the mind. Because the whole idea of a casino. Is the house always wins. It's supposed to be a money maker. In perpetuity. Only an absolute moron. Like Donald J. Trump. Would have to close a casino. Because of lost revenue. It's. I, I, I can't. I can't. I can't. With this. So to get back to the point. They've been in business together in one form or another since the mid to late 80s. And yes, they very much align on a lot of things. Well, Dana White also introduced Donald Trump at the Republican National Convention. So you have you really have a linchpin where Donald Trump has done business with Dana White and Vince McMahon. Donald Trump, for better or for worse, in fact, I think very much worse, has brought pro wrestling to politics very much in his debate style, in his speech style, and things like that. I'm a big proponent of the idea that everything is pro wrestling, but not everything should be pro wrestling. And the one thing that shouldn't be pro wrestling is politics or matters of civil rights and national security and things like that. So the fact that he's brought that kind of style to international relations and things like that, it's everybody's laughing at us. (laughs) Circling back, you started with WWF. That's where you got your love of pro wrestling. And then eventually you're like, I've had it with this company. Their politics suck and their product also sucks. But what was interesting to me, because I got out of pro wrestling because I thought the WWE product sucked. I thought pro wrestling was just going to die and nobody was going to talk about this thing anymore. But then interestingly enough, Not WWE, but wrestling was going up in popularity. I kept hearing about wrestling, pro wrestling, right? Not about WWE, pro wrestling. And then that curiosity made me start checking the dirt sheets again and all the websites. I'm like, what's going on? And what I observed was as WWE's popularity was going down, the indie wrestling scene, the popularity was going up and also international wrestling and also a different style of wrestling, a different style of wrestler. So, so what happened there? How did, how did that shift happen? That shift, it's an overnight sensation that took almost 15 years. Let's put it that way. Because I was going to say, because you're covering pro wrestling, that's not WWE. I'm sure if you try to do this 20 years ago, it would have been hard to find the stuff to talk about because you couldn't get there in 
in person or whatever. Whereas now you're in the perfect time to do this because all of those things are so accessible. That's a great point. And that's part of the acceleration of what's happened with this. You really have to go back to 2001 because within the span of about three months, as we were entering the spring of 2001, as WrestleMania 17 was happening, ECW and WCW both out of business. So the second and third largest promotions and the only other places a lot of guys can work in the business and make good money or, or better at that time, gone. McMahon becomes the monopoly. McMahon becomes the only game in town. And of course, nobody on a federal level is going to take pro wrestling seriously enough to investigate a monopoly or start an antitrust. And let's face it, with the Bushes in the White House, you know, they they love that shit. That's what they live for. So it just became this oligarchy where McMahon controls the business with an iron fist. But... You know, as you go a couple of years further down the line, stuff starts popping up. You know, you have total nonstop action wrestling, which has been limping along since then and really should have been the big competitor to the McMahons because they pumped out so many like Hall of Fame level talents. But the problem is the people who ran that company for so long didn't know their ass from their elbow. And they squandered those talents. And eventually those guys did go to other companies and become huge stars. So how important then was TNA's failure so important to the indie and international scene? Because instead of being like the WCW, where now you have two mainstream things and that maybe TNA's popularity would have made mainline pro wrestling popular again. Instead, because they dropped the ball, it seemed like they created this interest in this indie style and indie wrestling because they kind of put on TV the indie kind of style of the, the X division. Yeah. And that kind of introduced a lot of people to a different style of wrestling. And then people seem to follow those wrestlers that they fell in love with back into different organizations. It's, it's really intriguing when you think of it that way, that that failure kind of helped spawn that because as they're dropping the ball, Ring of Honor was on the come up. And Ring of Honor was featuring some of those same guys. You had just absolute masterpieces between guys like Samoa Joe and CM Punk and Brian Danielson, who a lot of people now know as Daniel Bryan, Nigel McGuinness, um, Alex Shelley, Austin Aries, Roderick Strong. I mean, I could go on and on. But that, honestly, those guys, that company in the mid-2000s, that's what kept me around because I almost drifted away from pro wrestling at that time. But that was really the start of me being well acquainted with the independence. And at that time, we thought it was accessible, but it was silly because you would have to wait for it to come out on DVD six weeks later and you would order the DVDs. First, you would do it by phone and then it got to the point you could order them through the website. And they built a really grassroots following through there. Eventually, um, Main booker there was Gabe Sapolsky. He branches off, starts Dragon Gate USA, later to become Evolve. Uh, the indie scene grows from there. You also have guys who, in TNA, now known as Impact Wrestling, just eventually get sick of that shit and wash out. Um, that's a huge linchpin of it. AJ Styles. AJ Styles, after a decade, finally leaves Impact Wrestling. He goes to New Japan Pro Wrestling, joins the Bullet Club. Boom huge becomes this huge deal and this 
big spotlight is shined on these world-class talents that between a big American talent redirecting the focus there and the advent of streaming and things like that, making it more accessible. Now you have AJ Styles having these amazing matches with guys that the American audiences may not have been as familiar with the general American audience may not have been familiar with like your Shinsuke Nakamura's your Hiroshi Tanahashi's Minoru Suzuki Kazuchika Okada, who I personally think is the greatest wrestler on God's green earth right now. Um, Just getting in there with those guys. And then new Japan goes along. They very smartly are pulling this indie talent they get your Young Bucks, Kenny Omega, Carl Anderson, Luke Gallows, all these guys. And they're doing the things that WWE is not. And as a result, they're growing their business. They're making inroads all these other places. And they become the second biggest company in the world. And as of right now, they still are. New Japan Pro Wrestling. New Japan Pro Wrestling, which is such a wild thing to say. And to the point where necessity made it so they have their own English commentary team now. And they have a streaming service that's available worldwide. But they very much forced WWE's hand to sign those guys. To start signing independent folks. So your Ricochets and your Alistair Blacks and your Cassius Onos and people like that. Really, it was a lot of New Japan forcing them to go get those guys. Now, going back to indie wrestling, when I think of indie wrestling, right, I think of when I was watching a lot of pro wrestling, these washed up wrestlers from the old territory days or from WWE or WCW or NWA or whatever. And they're just kind of wrestling these smaller shows. And it's a lot of just punching and kicking and not a lot of technical wrestling or mat wrestling and nothing aerial. That was indie wrestling for a while. How did that change from what I just described to this more athletic style of wrestling? It was an evolution. And it goes back to the necessity being the mother of invention. When WCW and ECW closed their doors, a lot of the indie standouts that built the foundation in the early to mid-2000s for what we have now were about to enter those companies. CM Punk was on deck to go to the original ECW. AJ Styles and Christopher Daniels had just been signed to WCW and were there for a cup of coffee and the whole thing was done and they were cut. And then you had guys in their prime. You had your your Jerry Lynn's and uh, I mean, that's a huge one off the top. And your Eddie Guerrero's for a hot minute, your super crazies, your just all these people that went and created this scene. And I think it was also very much a mindset of the young guys that they didn't just want to do that, that old kind of eighties dinosaur style. They very much wanted to bring their style and put their stamp on it. And I think that's definitely carried through to, to today. How important do you think then internet was back then to even inspire these wrestlers where they saw, you know, kind of a grainy clip on the early days of the internet and they see some move? How much of their moveset and their style do you think was inspired because they were coming up in the early days of the internet? I think the internet has become so absolutely entwined with the wrestling business, no matter what 
any big wig tells you that's the ear to the ground. It has been since the days of the message boards. I mean, I'm thinking of the old ROH message boards at ROHwrestling.com or like the message boards at like some, there would be sub boards at somewhere like E-Bombs World. There's a throwback for you. Or uh, a NoDQ.com or things like that where people would be discussing these things. And no matter what they told you, people were paying attention. People were watching. And the smart folks would take the useful stuff out of that and they would apply it. And at that time, the smart folks were like the early ring of honor and things like that. Then you have folks like the WWE who still to this day, it just seems like anything they say on that, they're just going to dig their heels in and they're going to do what they want to do because they know best. They're like your parents. So the crowd's not going to tell us what to do. We're going to tell them what they want. I think also an unsung hero of indie wrestling and indie wrestling changing wrestling overall is MySpace. Because in the early days of MySpace, a lot of people were using MySpace to promote their indie shows. It was like the early days of things going viral. Before there was even the big enough indie wrestling places for people to get paid a decent amount of money or for them to get famous enough to even be invited by New Japan Pro Wrestling. You saw clips of people like Christopher Daniels or Mike Quackenbush or these other people who would never get a shot in the big shows on MySpace. And then you find out, oh, I like this guy. I like their moves. And then they're promoting a show or they're telling you where they're going to be. It was like a free way for people to advertise. You didn't need a website. You didn't need to know any programming. Social media coming along at that time. That's a great point, Sam, is so vital for where we are. And MySpace really was the beginning. You brought up a great name. Lightning Mike Quackenbush, I think, is one of the great unsung heroes of the independent wrestling boom. Uh, Just an amazing technical wrestler. He's forgotten more about wrestling than I could ever hope to know. And I mean that as the highest compliment. Uh, He's been running Chikara for, I mean, we're going on, I think, 15 years of Chikara. And there's some stories that date all the way back to the beginning, like the story of Ultramantis becoming Ultramantis Black. (laughs) And you still have like the colony with the green ant and fire ant, soldier ant, all these things. He's such a brilliant mind, but he was one of the first that got it instantly. He got that, that, that social media could be that connection out to that person. It could be like Dusty Rhodes back in the day talking about reaching out. My hand is touching your hand, baby. And <laughs> he understood. Cole Cabana, another guy that totally got it from the very beginning and is very responsible for everything that we have now. But yes, yeah, social media was such a huge tool. And the guys that stuck around, the guys that you know blazed their own path or went on to make huge money, they understood it. And they understood what it could be. And they saw farther than the rest of us all the way 15, almost 15 years back. Absolutely true. So here are all the conditions that we've just laid out, right? Now there's this context. Now enters AEW. Tell us what that is. AEW stands for All Elite Wrestling. And really... It took a confluence of all of these different factors over the course of the last 15 years for this to come into existence. So you have the rise of social media, the the rise in profitability of independent wrestling, and therefore the rise of talents that can control their own destinies. 
And that goes back to what we were talking about with New Japan capitalizing on said talents. Very big. And by that, I'm talking about bringing in the Young Bucks, bringing in Kenny Omega. Um, You also have, at that same time, a guy like Cody Rhodes, who is dissatisfied with the system in WWE and decides to take a bet on himself and sees what's going on outside of the bubble and goes, I want to be part of that. This appeals to me on a creative level. I can work hard. I can make that money. I want to go get it. And then goes and does that and falls in with those guys. And at the same time, not only, I I don't want to make it sound like it's just in America or just in Japan this is growing, because at the same time, British wrestling turns around and rises from literal ashes. It was scorched earth in the late 90s, early 2000s, and has created an entirely new crop of guys. You've got your Will Ospreys, your Zack Sabre Juniors, a very important to our story, your Marty Skrulls, who puts in with those guys in Bullet Club. And it becomes this huge confluence of waves all coming together and all blending. And the biggest thing was with the Bullet Club, who then became known as the Elite, becoming so popular in New Japan Pro Wrestling that they start expanding and doing shows in America. And they start here in the Los Angeles area and in Long Beach, and they start moving outward towards there. They have a working agreement with Ring of Honor. It's another way to bring those American and British talents involved and bring them to America. They're selling out houses all the time. And then, as funny as it sounds, the catalyst is... Dave Meltzer makes some flippant remark about no independent show could could sell out an, an arena at this time. And Cody Rhodes tweets him back and goes, I'll take that bet. And that's how we get all in. And that was Labor Day weekend of 2018. Um, it was something where the elite guys, that core, so you're talking the Young Bucks, Kenny Omega, Cody Rhodes, Hangman Adam Page, Marty Skrull. They pull from the best independent talent that aren't necessarily tied down to other places, along with calling in a favor to New Japan and getting Okada as well. And they put on this this show, this amazing pay-per-view, and sell hundreds of thousands of pay-per-views, sell 11,000 plus seats, sell out the Sears Center in suburban Chicago, and that catches the attention of a money man. And that money man is Tony Khan who has pioneered the whole business of sports analytics, lifelong wrestling fan. I mean, I have a, I have a friend who works for one of the big internet news sites that has known Co- Tony Khan through the internet going back to the days of the original ECW, where they were both like fans on Brian Pillman's AOL chat. That's <laughs> how far back this goes. So he's the real deal. And he also, his family happens to own the Jacksonville Jaguars and Fulham FC. So we're talking billions with a B. More, They're worth more money than the McMahon family is, if you can imagine that. So all of a sudden, this becomes a serious deal. The rumors start swirling. At midnight on New Year's Day, the announcement is made. All Elite Wrestling's coming. The first pay-per-view is Memorial Day weekend in Las Vegas. And they get to work. 
they start signing guys, you know, they all walked away from contracts with New Japan Pro Wrestling. Even so much so Kenny Omega, who was the champion, who he was the IWGP heavyweight champion at the time, loses in the main event at Wrestle Kingdom and then is gone. And they just build this company and they're bringing these guys in. And what makes it part of what makes it different is the fact that they took the approach. We don't want to just sign a bunch of WWE retreads. Impact already did that. We want to be different. We want to change our presentation. We're going to have a more athletic style. Wins and losses are going to matter more. We want to go after the lapsed fan because there's a whole subsection of fans that went away. I mean, much like yourself, I think we could count you as part of that, that went away once ECW and WCW left, where they just got bored with the only game in town just getting just absolutely quagmired and just becoming an absolute slog to get through, especially when they go from two hours to three hours. Oh, God. It's like a sleeping pill. And they decide we want to be more exciting. We want to be what they aren't. We want to put the focus back on tag teams. Tag teams can be the main event. You know, we want to feature all these guys. We're going to put in a legend like Chris Jericho. That's a huge thing. If you didn't think that was immediately put them on WWE's radar by taking one of their surefire Hall of Fame guys like Chris Jericho, I mean, that's that's crazy. So to the point where they've leveraged all these confluences now and we're four pay-per-views deep for them where they did the inaugural pay-per-view in Las Vegas, which I was very lucky to be in attendance for. It was amazing. And then they doubled down on that by taking a guy like John Moxley, who had just left the WWE like a month or two prior and end the pay-per-view with him throwing Kenny Omega off a giant stage set through another stage piece. And the last shot you see is this guy that was featured on WWE for so long was their world champion. Who's like, this is where I want to be. And goes, hey, I want to be here because of the creative freedom and the do the things like that. And that's a big part of it too, because whereas you're getting handed a script and every single thing is micromanaged to death, on the WWE side of things, you go to AEW and Cody Rhodes said it best. They want these guys to play their music their way. Now, you mentioned earlier all these confluences and you said Great Britain had risen from the ashes again, right? What was happening with Mexico at this time? Was it also something where, like domestically, wrestling had become unpopular and then was coming back? Or was it always white hot? I wouldn't say it was always white hot. But I will say that as it got younger, you started to see more guys. I I currently think Mexico is still on the upswing. And you're seeing a lot of that. A lot of that is spearheaded, even though it failed, by Lucha Underground. And Lucha Underground being on television in North America and bringing a lot of those guys, it made an absolute superstar out of guys like Pentagon Jr. and Phoenix, who's now known as Ray Phoenix. Um, a guy like La Sombra, who went on to get unmasked and go to work in WWE as uh, Andrade Cien Almas. 
Uh, you have a guy like Roosh from the original Los Ingobernables who now works in Ring of Honor. So you're seeing all that big spread. And I think a lot of that has to do with social media and the internet and how accessible that is. And there's a whole other group coming up right behind him. I mean, if you're going to the Battle of Los Angeles for PWG here um, this coming week in L.A., you're going to see guys like Black Taurus. Uh, you're going to see Aramis, yeah, Pentagon, Ray Phoenix, uh, Bandito, uh, Laredo Kid. So it definitely got more eyes on the product and these incredibly talented dudes now with the internet kind of making the world bigger and smaller at the same time, they definitely have a, a voice too. Also, AEW doesn't seem to be following the WWE model. They seem to be still you know, billions of dollars behind it and trying to be a legitimate force, but at the same time, still adopting a lot of the indie promotion style, meaning their guys go off to other promotions. Other promotions can bring in their guys. It's still working like how indie shows work with each other. Now, that's interesting because that may stop here pretty soon because the word on the street is that the independent shots that these guys are doing are going to end when they go on national television in October. Now, where they'll be able to work and not work after that is very much a point of conjecture. There's some people that think they'll be able to work at friend a friendly place like PWG, which is co-run by Excalibur, one of the lead commentators for All Elite Wrestling, um, and the place where the Young Bucks pretty much became superstars. I mean, their fame spread from here in Southern California out to the rest of the world. And it's going to be interesting to see if that does hold true. But for all intents and purposes, a lot of these guys, as of the last day of September, they're done with indie shots with all these different places. So it's going to be interesting to see if that continues. But I do think it's very smart that they're keeping that independent spirit because they're going, hey, this style, what we're doing, what these other places have done, have been selling out larger and larger arenas around the world for the last couple of years. And to the point where we focused it all in one place, we sold 11,000 plus seats in Chicago. And then we did it again in Vegas. And then we brought it back and did it yet again in Chicago. And then they did two shows in between, one at CEO in Jacksonville, Florida called Fighter Fest. And they did a benefit for victims of gun violence in Jacksonville called Fight for the Fallen in July. And they've just been really judicious where their goal is fresh. We want fresh talent, all this stuff like that. The the old guys, quote unquote, are kind of kept to a minimum. And even then, there are guys that are not nearly as the old as some of the old guys you see on WWE television. I can only really think of like two that have actually wrestled, and that's Chris Jericho and Dustin Rhodes. Do you think part of why they're being pulled from indie might also be because AEW is trying to make everybody employees instead of independent contractors? That's a great point. And that's actually one of my one of the causes nearest and dearest to my heart in pro wrestling. And I'm glad you touched on that. Uh, we're still kind of unclear as what that is. I will tell you that it sounds like the EVP folks. So the, the folks involved in the day-to-day -day operations of the company, your Kenny Omega, Cody Rhodes, Brandy Rhodes, the Young Bucks, they are considered full employees and have all the benefits that come with it. 
Um, a high profile guy like Chris Jericho has gone on record and say that he's an employee of all elite wrestling and gets all the benefits that go with it. Uh, the, I will say that the pressure has been on from a lot of folks on the internet, myself included to give that to the guys of AEW and for all intents and purposes, Tony Khan is saying that that's the direction they're headed. That's where they want to be, which is a humongous step forward for the pro wrestling business. Cause I think it's not out of line to say that all of fight sports has had a real problem with this throughout their existence in that these guys pretty much get put through a meat grinder. And then when they're done, they have nothing to set, show for it. They get sent to the glue factory for all intents and purposes. I'm thinking of guys like the Iron Sheik who can barely walk or Tony Atlas who was homeless for a long period of time or God, the, the list goes on and on and on where there were no resources for them as far as money management. There was no sort of health insurance. There was no sort of education, a 401k, anything like that. So the fact that at the end of the day, a dude at a Taco Bell could have more employee, more employee benefits than a guy who wrestled for 10 years in the WWE is insane. So I'm really hoping that they walk their talk and that the Khan family and the Bucks and Cody and Kenny, that they're really serious about this because it could be a huge game changer. And the spotlight's definitely on them. Uh, yeah, I referenced the John Oliver segment on last week tonight, which brought a lot of outside focus into the just employee inequity in the business. They have the ability to change that narrative. It's another way that they can separate themselves from the WWE, separate themselves from the McMahon family and go, look at what we're doing. This is how much we care about our guys. And they've already said that they don't want to tour nearly as much as WWE because they feel that a quality of life for these guys is very important, which is a huge deal because even though the WWE guys aren't touring nearly as much as they did in the 80s when they were on the road 350 days a year, I have to repeat that because that's insane. 350 days a year. Bret Hart talked about it at length in his book, just like people just losing their minds given a stack of airplane tickets about as long as your foot and you would just go, 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 go. Um, I mean, somebody like Hulk Hogan would work nine, 10 matches in a week because at the beginning of his run, he'd be crossing the international dateline and working international stuff or working two shots a night and flying from an A show and a B show. I mean, they're not working that, but there's still guys are on the road between 200 to 250 days a year, depending on their spot. And it's still just an absolutely brutal schedule. So anything that makes the quality of life better for these guys, anything that gives them just basic employee benefits like you would expect to get from working for just a regular run-of-the-mill company, it's super important. And I think that they really have the opportunity, again, to separate themselves from the pack. They have the opportunity to shift the paradigm. And I absolutely think that they should. It's so important for the health of the business going forward. Now, somebody who's worked with Cody Rhodes recently in Mexico was the MMA fighter, Cain Velasquez. Now, have you heard any rumor mills about where he might end up? A lot. Absolutely. Um, I will say this. Cain showed an aptitude for it in his first match that was 
fairly impressive. Anybody who's followed Kane and fight sports knows the kind of freak athlete we're talking about. And I mean that as the highest compliment possible. Uh, I was familiar with him from attending Arizona State University. We weren't that far apart as far as class, uh, the, the class year, I should say. He was on the wrestling team, All-American, just super athlete. So when he got to the UFC and he did all the things that he was able to do, I wasn't surprised by it. I thought it was awesome. I loved it. I will say that I feel his career was shortened in the UFC because those fights with Junior Dos Santos put him through the meat grinder. You talked about shop worn earlier with a guy like uh, Don Cerrone, but like the cowboy Kane was shop worn after those three fights with Junior that they changed him and there was no going back from that. So the fact that he was able to take something he loved on the side, like pro wrestling and redirect his focus and get involved in that. And to have such a good showing in a six man match, which, you know, he didn't have to be in the ring for very long, but he got to look really good with really impressive guys. That's a great thing for him. And when you have a guy who is involved in the day to day running of AEW, Cody, who teamed with him and went, there's no way he should have been that good in his first match. Immediately, the rumor mill starts like, are you going to have him go to AEW? Are he is he going to be their answer to Brock Lesnar? Or is WWE going to bring him in and put him against Brock Lesnar? Or what's going to happen? Or there's a long history of MMA fighters going to New Japan Pro Wrestling back in the day. I mean, Bob Sapp, great example, became an absolute overnight sensation there between K1 and they made him the IWGP heavyweight champion on the last days of Anoki running the company. Back when Anoki ran, it was just obsessed with MMA <laughs> and Anokiism and that whole thing. I could go on for days about just that, as fascinating as that is. But that's a guy that there's so much going around, and you could make the argument he could be one of the most intriguing and sought-after free agents of this next calendar year of 2020. Where he goes and what he does is going to be intense speculation. All we know as of right now is he has one more date on the books with AAA. So that'll either be when they run New York City coming up, or it'll be closer to the end of the year when they come and run the forum in Los Angeles. I wouldn't be surprised if they hold him off to the forum because that gives him more time to work. And he's got such a big following out here on the West Coast. Yeah, I think he does that. And then pretty much somebody will hand him a blank check and he can kind of do whatever he wants. Pro Wrestling Insider came out with their top 500 pro wrestlers list and there's their top 10 i know you don't follow up with the wwe stars as much so instead of running through all 10 i thought it'd be interesting just to have you tell us about some of the less familiar names who aren't in the wwe in the top 10 list so number five is kazuchika how do i say kazuchiko kata the rainmaker the reigning IWGP heavyweight champion. Um, my personal pick is the best wrestler on planet Earth right now. He's a master. Uh, as of right now, he has, I think, the two or three highest rated matches in the history of the Wrestling Observer. He's just incredible. Uh, that whole Rainmaker character and everything he's built in New Japan. And he's 30. He's got so much time still. He 
I think his 2017 is the best single year I have seen anybody have since Ric Flair's 1989. And that was the year he had those classics with Ricky Steamboat and Terry Funk just from end to end, bell to bell was amazing. Explain to us why he's so much better than everybody else or why you rate him so highly. Because you look at, you know, if you're a neophyte and you just watch clips of a lot of New Japan Pro Wrestling, the Japanese guys, right? A lot of them are more high flying than him. A lot of them might do more mat wrestling. Specialty wise, there's a lot of guys who are better than him in all these different areas. What makes him then so special? He's special to me in the way that a prime Ric Flair was special in that he is so good at so many things. Like many guys, like you'll have some guys that'll be an elite level at just promos, or you'll have guys that'll be an elite level at just the high flying or just the mat style. But he does so many things so well. You know, he trained in Mexico with Ultimo Dragon. He came up in Toriumon. He's been training since he was 16 years old. Uh, he's been around the world and back again. He's worked all these styles into an amalgamation there. And he helped kind of spearhead the hybrid style that you now see from heavyweights that's continuing. You have guys like Will Ospreay and Shingo Takagi who are now coming up from the juniors and entering the heavyweight ranks of New Japan Pro Wrestling. And they're furthering what Okada trailblazed and really bringing that hybrid style to there. And he, through just working hard on his character and working with Ghetto, has become a really good promo. He's busted his ass to learn English. Uh, his psychology is absolutely top-notch. He can work a 15-minute sprint. He can work a 60-minute Broadway. Everything. Now, when you say psychology, what do you mean by that? Psychology in that he's so good at knowing how the puzzle goes together. You know, where to put this move when. Listening to the crowd. Building the match based off of that. Because a great match almost has the crowd as involved as the wrestlers themselves. And you're going off the ebb and flow and you're taking everybody on this ride together. And that's part of the problem with like a cookie cutter thing like WWE is a lot of these guys aren't listening to the crowd. They're following a script. It's almost like a dance routine. But unlike Fred and Ginger, they're not interacting it's very tunnel vision and that's another beautiful thing about the independence coming back up because it gives these guys grounds to learn and to involve the crowd because they're right on top of you so they're able to take those lessons and go forward and okada's so incredibly good at that and i just feel like he's one of a very few guys that truly, truly gets it. Next, let's talk about Kenny Omega, who's also on the list. What makes him so special? Kenny Omega is special in quite a few of the same ways that Okada is. And this is a guy that walked away from WWE's developmental system, you know, back in the mid 2000s. And he went, I want something different than this. This is a guy that packed up his everything he had in Canada, moved to Japan, immersed himself in the culture, worked for DDT, learned Japanese. He's fluent. And 
I mean, I've seen him on N New Japan shows where he could cut a fluent promo in Japanese just as easily as he can cut one in English. He is so important because he'll be remembered as the bridge. He was the bridge and he took the work that AJ Styles had started and completed that to America. And even if he never goes back to New Japan Pro Wrestling, he is so huge and he will be so huge in their history as kind of a flashpoint, a catalyst for them becoming more accessible. I've gone on record and say that whether people want to admit it or not, Kenny Omega is a big reason why they have an English commentary team. Kenny Omega is a big reason why they now do a live broadcast of every single night of the G1 Climax. He was the first Gaijin to win the G1 Climax. I think he was only the third or fourth Gaijin ever to win the IWGP Heavyweight Championship. It was such a huge deal. And the fact that he and Okada were these amazing dance partners. I feel like they're going to be remembered in the same breath, like a Ricky Steamboat versus Ric Flair, as far as just this crossing point between sports entertainment or is it an entertaining sport? And having you on the edge of your seat and just giving it that really legitimate feel where you just lose yourself in it and 45 minutes, 60 minutes, 65 minutes just passes in a flash and these guys tell this amazing story. So if Okada's my 1A. I think Omega's my 1B. Who is Hiroshi Tanahashi? Because he's also in the top 10. Tanahashi is super important because he's the guy that pulled New Japan out of the dark ages. He's the guy that saved New Japan from bankruptcy. The big thing in the early to mid 2000s was Antonio Inoki still owned the company and he came so obsessed with this idea of Inokiism where... All of my main event guys have to be MMA fighters too. They have to be legitimate. They have to be real. And it leads to the pushing of a guy like Shinsuke Nakamura when he was a rookie into making him do all these MMA fights. And he was good. He only lost once, but he got hurt. And it was too much too soon. And he ran the risk of the company just collapsing. And they almost did. But Bushi Road comes in. They buy the company. You have this guy, another master of psychology. Um, for those that are uninitiated, I always compare Hiroshi Tanahashi to Brett the Hitman Hart. Just somebody who's so solid and so knowledgeable and could get a great match out of anybody. Absolutely anybody. That's the power of Tanahashi. And his matches with Okada really set the table for when the American audiences started coming in. Because the hardcores like me heard the rumblings from over there about Okada versus Tanahashi and that their series just built and built and built. So by the point you had Wrestle Kingdom 9, which was the first one you could watch live on pay-per-view from America, you had Okada versus Tanahashi on top. And then in the semi-main, you had Ibushi and Nakamura just beating the absolute bejesus out of each other. And you were just like, holy crap, this is amazing. Tanahashi is the man that so much of New Japan has been built on for the last 15 years. He's so incredibly important to their story. And it's it's not hyperbole, at least to me, to think that he's going to eventually be remembered in the same breath as an Anoki or as a great Muda or as a Shinya Hashimoto as the really one of the absolutely most important guys to that company. 
I mean, he deserves that credit. Now, you've already mentioned him a few times. Last person we'll cover off the top 10 list is AJ Styles. Who is AJ Styles? The phenomenal AJ Styles. Um, I got to be honest, I haven't really watched a lot of him since he's gotten to WWE. I'm, I'm incredibly happy for his success. I will say that most of my viewing of his has been the first 15 or so years of his career. Well, a lot of people would say his main run, the real AJ Styles that made him what he is, is all prior to WWE anyway. I would agree. I would think that his most important thing, the only, the main reason he's in WWE, and I think if you asked him and he was being honest, he would tell you so. His time in New Japan is what got him into WWE because he was an impact for a decade before that. He, I think he was an impact from 2002 when they opened the doors until like 2013. And he goes to New Japan Pro Wrestling, walks right in the front door, and his first match in wins the IWGP heavyweight title and becomes the new leader of Bullet Club after Prince Devitt leaves and goes to WWE to become Finn Balor. It's a huge deal. It took it took a hot angle that looked like it was going to die in the vine, and it went, oh crap, we are in a new phase of the Bullet Club. The Bullet Club becoming so huge owes a lot to AJ Styles and owes a lot to the kind of matches that he was having with everybody. I think that's some of the greatest stuff of this decade. He just did amazing things. The only thing that I'm bummed about, I wish he'd stuck around to have a blow-off match with Kenny Omega. And the fact that that didn't happen is the one regret I have about his New Japan run. Everything else was great. He had amazing matches with Suzuki. He had a blow-away match. His, his next to last match in the company was with Shinsuke Nakamura at Wrestle Kingdom. And unbelievable unbelievable stuff like i can't imagine that their wwe matches could ever compare to that and just everybody down the line okada i he had an amazing one with ibushi and he matched up so well and he just took to that style like a duck to water and it was so amazing to see it doesn't surprise me that he's still on the list well, where would you put him in your all-time list? Now now we're getting into some deep water here because I have different guys on that all-time list for different reasons. Uh, Who's your top three then? Killing me, Smalls. That's a tough pull. Uh, even to do a top five would be tough. Flair's definitely in there. Uh, Macho Man Randy Savage is definitely in there. Here's Here's a deep cut for you. I think Bruiser Brody is definitely a guy who is so influential to the current style with your hardcore stuff and your ultra violence and your death matches, but he could also go and wrestle Ric Flair for 60 minutes. He was one of the most versatile guys without a bruiser Brody. There's no Mick Foley. And without Mick Foley, there's a whole subsection of the wrestling scene that doesn't exist. Or, or Terry Funk is another guy that would be on my top 10 all time. Holy crap. I mean, so many guys, if they don't tell you they were influenced by Terry Funk in some way, they're absolutely full of shit. I, I would say Okada is starting to creep into that top 10 or 15 for me. And he's only 30 years old, so the sky's the limit for that. So when you were talking about your list of where you rank people, right? Like an Okada or Kenny Omega or even an AJ Styles, you're talking more like currently in the last few years where you would rank them, but your all-time list, then you're, you're having to go historical 
and you're looking at the context of like hindsight, now that their career is over, how much influence did they have? It's, it's easier to do that with a long view. So to have a longer lens and stand back from, from the tree and look at the branches, it's a lot easier to really put that into context that way. Now, do I think that Okada will belong in that mix without question? He definitely will. I think Kenny will belong in that mix too. It's going to be very interesting to see what he does in his AEW phase. They're certainly setting the table to tell really interesting stories with him as they are with guys like the Young Bucks. Now, if we talk the greatest tag teams of all time, the Young Bucks are already in that top 10. That's how much of an impact they've had and how much they've changed the game. Because they took tag team wrestling seriously when not a lot of other folks did. So I would have them definitely in that top 10 all-time list with your Rock and Roll Express, your Midnight Express, your Road Warriors, your Heart Foundation, your British Bulldogs. They belong there already. And they're going to keep climbing. Controversial question. Would you put Demolition on that list? (sighs) You you knew what you were doing there. (laughs) It's tough. Demolition was a good team. But they're always going to have that stigma of being a road warrior ripoff. Whereas if you looked at their in-ring style, it was a different in-ring style than Hawk and Animal with Axe and Smash. But because of the paint, because of the leather, because of the, the similarities in the music and stuff like that. And the fact that we never really got a proper blow off with them. As soon as the Legion of Doom came to the WWF in 1990, it was like they... They flushed the toilet on demolition, you know, which I think was a mistake. They left a lot of money on the table doing that. So it's really tough to say. Top 20, yes. Top 10, that might be a little tough. But I I really did enjoy them growing up. They were, they were a real big deal. And up until about... A year or two ago, from my understanding, they were the longest, they had the longest continuous tag team title reign in the history of the WWE. They really had a good theme song, though. Oh, well, that's because you had like Rick Derringer, one of the great unsung heroes of like 70s rock and roll who was making theme music for them. I mean, this is one of the OG guitar heroes. He did rock and roll hoochie coo on his own, and that was his big one hit. He had a band that he was a part of the band that did hang on Sloopy in the 60s. And then he comes in and gets involved around the era of the wrestling album. He writes Real American. Oh, yeah, that's his. I mean, and that wasn't even for Hulk Hogan. That was originally written for Barry Windham and Mike Rotundo. And they fucked off and left the company and uh, go, went to go work for Crockett. So they went, let's hang it on Hogan and Supernova. Uh, and then, yeah, and then he did the song for Demolition. But dude was a fucking guitar hero. All right. I think we've covered a lot of pro wrestling. I think this can be even a resource for lapsed fans to catch them up to where we are now. Now, with all that said, where can people find you? People can find me primarily on the Steel Cage Network feed. Uh, Captain Jack's Armbar Emporium is creeping up on 100 episodes, which is crazy to say. You can always find me on Twitter at Jack Heartless. I'm on Instagram at Captain Jack Heartless, usually traveling from a show or a gig or something of that. Like those are the easiest ways to find me. Uh, very public email for the show, Captain Jack at the steelcage.com. I encourage questions, show ideas, requests to be on the show. 
I love having people from all walks of life on there. I've had everybody from hip hop producers to managers, to bookers, to wrestlers, former world champions, commentators, just super fans, merch makers, you name it. I love it. And it's all in the purpose of people that love pro wrestling. And that's what we come together as. 